Welcome back to our series, Looking Unto Jesus. As you know, in the last several lessons, we have been looking at the gospel as a motivation for sanctification. And in our last lesson, we looked at Edward Payson and him doing a commentary on what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he said he cared to know nothing, to make known nothing among them but the cross of Christ. And Payson correctly interprets that to mean not that Paul is saying he was going to preach the gospel and leave aside all moral duty, not at all. He was just emphasizing that the gospel was the center of his proclamation, the motivation for moral duty. And that moral duty to which we devote ourselves is the way in which we walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Now, we're going to look at Charles Simeon, and the text is so large that, believe it or not, I'm not going to make a lot of comments. But I found this excerpt um, from his commentaries that I thought were absolutely excellent and necessary today, especially for the younger believers. Because I want to share with you, some of you young men, be very careful of an antinomianism that seems to constantly be wanting to sneak in. We are saved by believing in Christ. Salvation is 100% a work of God. It is all of grace. But you must understand, we are given moral duties, not through which we might save ourselves, but because we are saved and we desire to live a God-honoring, Christ-honoring life. And that's kind of the theme of what Charles Simeon is going to write here. And so uh, let me read and uh, hopefully not make too many uh, comments because it's a rather lengthy passage. And really, especially you young ministers, give attention to this. You need to hear this. There are two particular views in which Paul invariably spoke of the death of Christ, namely as the ground of our hope and as the motive to our obedience, the ground of our hope and the motive to our obedience. Strongly as he enforced the necessity of relying upon Christ and founding our hopes of salvation solely on his obedience unto death, he was no less earnest in promoting the interests of holiness. True, genuine, biblical holiness. Whilst he represented the believers as dead to the law and without law, he still insisted that they were under the law to Christ and as much bound to obey every tittle of it as ever. And he enforced obedience to it in all its branches and to the utmost possible extent. Moreover, when the doctrines which he had taught were in danger of being abused to licentious purposes, he expressed his utter abhorrence 
his utter abhorrence of such a procedure and declared that the grace of God, which brought salvation, taught them that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, they should live righteously, soberly and godly in this present world. Titus 2.11 and 12. If this isn't a part of your gospel, you've lost something. A life of holy obedience is represented by him as the great object which Christ aimed to produce in all his people. Indeed, the very name Jesus proclaimed that the object of his coming was to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. The same was the scope and end of his death, even to redeem them from all iniquity and to purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Titus 2.14 His resurrection and ascension to heaven had also the same end in view. For therefore he both died and rose and revived that he might be the Lord both of the living and the dead. Romans 14.9 Impressed with a sense of these things himself, St. Paul labored more abundantly than any of the apostles in his holy vocation. He proceeded with zeal, which nothing could quench, and an ardor which nothing could damp. Privations, labors, imprisonment, deaths were of no account in his eyes. None of these things moved him, neither counted he his life dear to him, so that he might but finish his course with joy and fulfill the ministry that was committed to him, Acts 20, 24. But what was the principle by which he was actuated? What moved Paul? He himself tells us that he was impelled by a sense of obligation to Christ for all that he had done and suffered for him. The love of Christ constrains us, he said, because thus we judge that if one died for all, then all were dead and that he died for all that they who live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Second Corinthians five fourteen and 15. This is that principle which he desired to be universally embraced and endeavored to impress on the minds of all. We beseech you, brethren, says he, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Romans 12, 1 and 2. What mercies he refers to, we are at no loss to determine. They are the great mercies vouchsafed, to us in the work of redemption. For so he says in another place, you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Now this is the subject with the apostle, which the apostle commends under the terms Christ crucified. It consists of two parts. First, of trust in Christ for salvation. And next, of obedience to the law for his sake. Had either part of it been taken alone, his views 
had been imperfect and his ministry without success. Had he neglected to set forth Christ as the only savior of the world, he would have betrayed his trust and led his hearers to build their hopes on a foundation of sand. On the other hand, if he had neglected to teach holiness and to set forth redeeming love as that great incentive to obedience, he would have been justly chargeable with that which has been often falsely imputed to him an antinomian spirit and his doctrines would have merited the hatred which has most unjustly been cast upon them. But on either side, he did. But on neither side did he err. He forgot neither the foundation nor the superstructure. He distinguished properly between them and kept each in its place. And that, brethren, is what we must do. We must preach the gospel to all men, calling all men to freely come and embrace the Savior by faith. We must proclaim on the housetops grace upon grace upon grace upon grace that our position, our union, everything we are before God has been accomplished in Christ. We must preach this. You cannot preach too much grace. But we must also preach that those who have believed, who have been redeemed immutably so, are now called upon to live in a manner worthy of that calling. And as we're not born into this world with wisdom, we are not born again with a great deal of wisdom. It is, it is a jewel that must be obtained. It is a lesson that must be learned in studying not just a few epistles, but the full counsel of God and judging the full counsel, interpreting the, the full counsel correctly. Let no part of this book go. Every part of it is for you. Yes, I am sure that through history and even till today, People are taking Old Testament law and twisting it in so many different fashions and bringing people into bondage. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is correctly interpreting the scripture in light of the gospel and then living out the full counsel of scripture, standing upon the accomplishments of Christ and motivated by those accomplishments. And this, again, is why we read old books. God bless you.